Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our look at God's word this morning, let's go to the author of Scripture, to ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful for this time that we come to study your word, that it is in the study of your word that we come to understand who you are. We come to understand who we are as creatures created in your image and likeness. We come to understand how we can have a relationship with you, and we come to understand that your policy towards us is on the basis of, of grace. It is based on who you are, what you have provided for us, not on the basis of who we are or what we do. Father, we are thankful that we have your word because it is in your word that we have the words of life. And it is only on the basis of the words of life that we can truly experience life in the fullness and in all of the dimensions that you have provided for us. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Kings, may we be uh, able to focus on these things and see how the principles that we study uh, this morning and that we see exemplified in the life of Hezekiah and his spiritual life and the life of Judah, that in this we will be challenged to exercise the same kind of faith, the same kind of trust in you as we face the same kinds of conflicts and battles on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, and we'll be probably looking at the first seven or eight verses this morning, focusing on the divine solution, which is at the start of the divine solution, we see it's to turn to God and to trust in Him. As we look at chapter 19 and 20, which covers the final phase, the final uh, years of Hezekiah's reign, leaving out much of what happens after the event of the Assyrian uh, crisis. Uh, there's a few things we have to go over before we really understand how the writer of Scripture is putting these things uh, together for us. We have a tendency as... Uh, Westerners, because of how we read books and how we write history, which is primarily influenced out of a Greco-Roman background, to try to take that approach and apply it to Scripture. The writers of Scripture, while they are writing true facts of history, they often do not organize those facts in a historical order, but they organize them in a way to express a certain uh, theologically uh, defined uh, agenda. There is a sort of a, an, a divine editor here who is making some specific points in relationship to the spiritual life of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we have to take a little time this morning to sort of structure this uh, chronologically so we can understand what is actually going on. But before we do that, I want to review just a moment what we've looked at to set the context of the beginning of chapter 19. In chapter 18, beginning in verse 17, we saw the direct challenge of the Assyrians, that this huge threat has come into the southern kingdom of Judah as the army of Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria, 
has come south, and this is the same army that has been feared by the various nations surrounding Israel. They have conquered all of these other kingdoms and villages and towns uh, along the way, and they are greatly feared. The Assyrians were some of the most uh, violent, brutal people in all of history. In fact, the brutality, uh, the love of violence, uh, the uh, sadistic use of torture uh, among the Assyrians was as bad as any other group ever seen in history, probably much worse than, than the Nazis in Nazi Germany, maybe even worse than some of the brutality displayed by some of the various uh, American Indian tribes during the uh, 18th and 19th century. The warfare, if you ever read any accounts of the warfare between uh, various American Indian tribes against each other, you, you can just be appalled by the level of violence and brutality and the love of torture uh, that was there. But I think that paled in comparison to the love of torture and brutality that the Assyrians had. So as this army has just wiped up everybody in their path, and now they are in Judah, and according to the claims of of Sennacherib later on that we found they have already uh, conquered some 46 towns and villages. They're involved in a siege against Lachish, which is to the southwest of Jerusalem, about uh, 20 or 25 miles, and Jerusalem is next. And so uh, Sennacherib has sent out his, his three top individuals, the commander of his army, the commander-in-chief of his, his military, and his uh, and the Rabshaka, who is sort of his, the, 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 the head of the household, his, his role really had something to do with chief, sort of chief of staff, and he would be the number two person in authority in the Assyrian Empire. And so they come and they challenge uh, Hezekiah's representatives. He sends out three representatives to listen to their, uh, their uh, propaganda. And the focus of their propaganda is to intimidate uh, Hezekiah, to intimidate the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to convince them that if they would just surrender, that everything would be fine, and that they would provide them with everything they could possibly want in life, they would have uh, they would have be able to drink uh, wine from their own vineyard and water from their own cisterns, and they would have uh, plenty of food on the table if they would just. Uh, meekly submit to the uh, conquest of the Assyrians. And the fact that they uh, would even try that is sort of humorous because the word had spread and it was widely known among anyone in the ancient world what happened to anybody who was conquered by the Assyrians. They were treated brutally, they were tortured, uh, they would be uh, resettled. Uh, in many different portions of the Assyrian Empire, scattered, taken from their friends, their family, maybe never to see them again in this life. And so the the Jews knew uh, the horrors that would come if they were to uh, surrender to Sennacherib. And I focused the last two or three weeks on the the strategy that that really underlies this whole approach of the these three leaders. It's it's not an unusual strategy in history. It is the challenge of the authority, the veracity, and the reality of God's ability to provide and protect us. It's essentially a challenge on even the existence of God because they, they, they were cynics. They understood that the gods that they worshipped were probably nothing more than uh, wood and stone and metal. And they, these were not uh, men who were religious in any of uh, the normative sense of the word, but they were uh, brutal in their desire to expand their empire. They ha- were dominated by power lust and the desire to control and dominate uh, dominate the ancient world. And so I focused on the strategy that they used in trying to uh, trying to remove the barriers that the I mean, the, the spiritual barriers that the Jews would erect in order to uh, uh, refute them, that they would say, well, we're going to trust in our God. And their response was, why, how can you trust in your God? Look, uh, Hezekiah's removed all the, all the idols to your God. See, they didn't understand the difference between the idols and uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they also said that, that no other gods have been able to stand against us, so why do you trust in your God? 
Now, as I pointed out, their approach was the same strategy that Satan used in the Garden of Eden with Eve to ask this loaded question, have you thought about or did God really say that you can't eat from all the trees in the garden, that you can't, uh, can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And the question was a loaded question because it was, if it's going to be answered, it can only be answered by putting yourself in a position to judge God for the creature, Eve, to put herself in a position to judge and evaluate uh, the thinking of the creator, God, who had made everything and defined everything. But Eve just walked right into that trap, like most of us do all the time, and we immediately uh, jump in without any thought, and we begin to answer the question and validate the presuppositions or assumptions behind the question. In this chapter, we see that Hezekiah uh, prevents that from happening by telling his representatives to not say anything. Don't answer their questions, don't respond to them, don't uh, say a word, just listen to what they say, and then come back. And that represents a lot of wisdom on Hezekiah's part. He understands principles that we see uh, uh, demonstrated in Scripture in various passages, such as Proverbs 26, 4, which says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. The idea here is is that when someone who is operating on a human viewpoint uh, view of life, a human viewpoint approach to reality, then if you answer them according to their assumptions, if you validate their assumptions, then you've really lost the battle, and you're going to be just like them. You're both arguing from either experience or uh, independent experience or independent reason, rather than answering according to uh, what God has said. So we have to be very careful how we answer questions, objections, challenges to God's word that we don't validate or get walk into a trap by validating a uh, contrary or contradictory uh, way of thinking. Uh, the New Testament states the same thing. To Paul, writing to Timothy, says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Just because somebody raises certain questions or certain objections doesn't mean you need to answer them. You need to stop, think, evaluate the best strategy to answer them from the framework of biblical truth. The verse that we looked at initially, don't answer the fool according to his folly. Remember, the fool is defined in Scripture as the one who has said in his heart, that is, in his thinking now overtly, the fool may believe in God or have the trappings of religion, but in his heart, that means in the way he thinks, he thinks he operates as if there is no God. And so the psalmist writes, and this is in two passages in Scripture, and there's only a few verses in Scripture that are repeated almost verbatim that we find in the Scripture. Another one is found twice in, in Proverbs, says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. There's a way that almost every human religion comes up with that seems to make sense to people, and that is that you can do certain things to gain God's approval and gain God's blessing. But throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament emphasize that the only way to, uh, to God is to just trust in him, that it is on the basis of faith, and faith alone that we are justified, Abraham, in Genesis 15:6, said that that he his faith uh, was reckoned to him uh, as righteousness; that he was justified by faith alone, not by what he did, but by trusting God's promise. In contrast, the fool says there is no God, and so the fool operates on a presupposition that there is nothing more real than his own experience and his own reason. That's where the Assyrians are as they present this challenge to, uh, to Judah. And uh, Hezekiah instructed them, don't answer, don't fall into that trap. And because once you start uh, dialoguing with them, once you start validating what they've said, then we're going to be caught in a diplomatic trap. Now, this kind of thing can happen to us in many different ways. 
And it's almost always associated with the same kind of circumstance that you have here, and that is some sort of problem or challenge in life. We face all kinds of different challenges in life. Some of these are small challenges, just the everyday challenges of trying to decide that faced with a set of circumstances, am I going to do what I know to be right by trusting in God, trusting in his word, or am I going to handle, try to handle this situation on my own resources? Any time that you're faced, that we are faced with a set of circumstances where we have to make that kind of a choice, that is what I mean by a problem. It is more of an academic use of the word problem. You're faced with a decision that you have to make. You have to work your way through that decision and make a, and make your choice as to whether you're going to resolve it one way or the other. This is why we call certain uh, spiritual skills problem-solving devices because it's not that you're faced with something that's big and huge but many times it's just something small. But it, it means you have to choose divine viewpoint, human viewpoint, God's way or my way. And so in this circumstance, it, Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, is faced with a major challenge as they are faced with extermination by the army of Assyria. How does Hezekiah respond? Well, we see this in the first verse of the next chapter. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that is, when they brought the report back, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. This is the starting point of how Hezekiah is going to solve this problem. But before we can get into the details of this, we have to stop a minute and go back and do a little flyover on these three chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20, to understand the chronology. Once we understand the chronology here, a couple of things are going to be a little more apparent to you than they are uh, right now. Let's just see what we know for sure. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 18, you see that when Hezekiah began to reign in Judah, Hezekiah was a king whose heart was completely devoted to the Lord. God's assessment of Hezekiah is that he is the greatest king in Judah. There is no king in Judah, including Josiah, his grandson, who will come along and have another major revival during his life. There is no king in the southern kingdom of Judah that has, is more obedient to God than Hezekiah. There's no king in the southern kingdom of Judah who is more consistent in his trust in God than Hezekiah. But that doesn't mean that Hezekiah doesn't have his failures. And so we see how at the beginning of his reign, when he is actually co-regent with his father Ahaz, who was one of the worst kings, but not the worst, but one of the worst kings, one of the greatest idolatrous kings in the, in the uh, uh, southern kingdom, that Hezekiah began to cleanse the temple and he began to restore the priesthood and he began to take the people in the southern kingdom back to the truth of God's word, back to obedience to the Torah, back to obedience to the Mosaic law and began to move the nation back to a position of obedience with God. And so the first part of his reign, there's probably a period of about 10 years that he is a co-regent with Ahaz, and it's during that time that the northern kingdom of Israel is defeated and uh, the deportations began into other parts of the Assyrian Empire. So this occurred, we know, in 722 B.C., 722 B.C., Sargon II brings the Assyrian army down, conquers Damascus uh, and Syria, and then conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and begins the uh, deportations. Uh, six years later, in 715 B.C., Hezekiah begins his sole reign. Ahaz dies, and Hezekiah is uh, his sole reign. So this... Uh, clears up some of the chronological uh, problems in the, pat in the chapter because it talks about the fact that in verse 10, 1810 at the end of, of um, uh, let's, uh, in, or, uh, the last part of verse 10, the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, Hosea king of Israel, Samaria was taken. This is the sixth year of Hezekiah's co-regency with Ahaz. 
Okay, there, there are two ways they, they, they're going to count the years here. One is from the time he begins co-regent, and then another is from the time he begins his sole reign. So during that period, from the time he begins the co-regency down and including the, t- the first years or so, maybe ten years or so of his, of his uh, sole reign over Judah, Hezekiah is devoted to the Lord. He is obedient. He is making sure that all of the idols and all the false uh, uh, altars, the, the altars in the high places, all of these are destroyed and removed. But like happens in many of our spiritual lives, as time goes by, we begin to trust the Lord less and less. We get our eyes off of the Word and onto the details of life, and uh, we see a problem in our spiritual life. By 701, which we know is when Sennacherib invades into uh, into the Levant again, and he conquers the Philistines, he conquers some of the uh, other people in the area of Lebanon, Tyre, Sidon, Phoenicia, these areas. It's in 701 that you have the uh, uh, the assault on on Jerusalem. By 701, Hezekiah has quit trusting God. And as the threat from Assyria appears on the horizon, Hezekiah looks to his own resources rather than God's resources. This is a major problem that we have today in America, is we face various threats. We face external threats from external enemies that seek to destroy us, destroy the West, who hate anyone who is associated with Israel. They hate anyone who is standing for freedom and they seek to do anything and everything they can to create any measure of chaos. There are things we can do in terms of technology, in terms of military strategy, to strengthen our position, but the answer ultimately isn't in the military, and ultimately it isn't in technology. Ultimately, the answer now as then is a spiritual answer. There are also problems we face domestically, from various uh, groups within the nation that seek to attack and destroy our freedoms and destroy the integrity of this nation and to seek to destroy the integrity of our legal system as founded upon as founded upon the constitution again the solution isn't in politics. Politics is important. I'm not taking away from that. It is important for every person who's a citizen in the United States to be knowledgeable about what's going on, to be involved in what's going on in the process, and to be as active as you can in the process. But what happens again and again and again is I see people think somewhere along the line, all of a sudden the hope goes to politics. Shifts from God, and you think if we just had this man as president, everything would be solved. Or if we just changed the makeup of the Congress, and right now the uh, popularity of the Congress is at its lowest point in all of history, changing the Congress won't change anything. Congress is just a manifestation, a representation of the people. The real hope for this nation, for any nation, ultimately comes back to that relationship to God. That is exactly what we see in Second Kings chapter 19, is when Hezekiah and the people get away from God, then the nation is threatened. But when they turn back to God, which is what happens in chapter 19, then they are protected. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't strengthen the military, that they shouldn't fortify the cities, or be engaged in any of the other things that a nation should do in order to protect itself and to defend itself. But that's not the ultimate solution. The same thing is true in our lives. There are many things that we can do in our own lives in order to give some measure of stability and happiness. But that's not the ultimate source of happiness or the ultimate source of stability. And if we are not, do not have our lives basically governed by the use of these, what, what we refer to as a ten problem-solving devices, that these basic spiritual skills, then no matter what else you do, ultimately it is not going to bring you to a position of stability, a position of, uh, of real happiness and hope and peace in your life. So we see this, this T 
tension here. Do we trust in ourselves and our own resources, or do we trust in God? And initially what happens is we see that Hezekiah is no longer dependent upon God. He quits trusting God in verse 14. He all of a sudden, whereas before in trusting God, he had refused to pay the tribute, uh, basically a protection uh, racket, uh, protection tax to Sennacherib. He refuses, along with others in the uh, uh, others of his neighbors, like the Philistines, refuses to pay the the tribute to to Assyria. And now that there's going to be a negative reaction to that, you see, his courage isn't quite what it had been because his faith isn't what it had been. And so when uh, Assyria heads south and uh, Sennacherib assesses him with a tribute of 300 talents of of, uh, silver and 30 talents of gold, which is equivalent to 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold, huge amount of money in that day and based on their economy. Hezekiah has the option. This is the problem. Do I, the problem isn't do I give him the money or not. That's, that's the wrong definition. The problem is do I trust God or not. It always comes down to that. Do I trust God or not? Rather than trusting God, he decides to handle it himself, and so he goes into the house of the Lord, the temple, and to his own treasuries, and he empties the treasury of gold and silver to pay off to pay off uh, Sennacherib. Now, I want you to pay attention to that, uh, to what we see there in verse uh, uh, 15. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and gave it to the king of Assyria. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot left. You just have to remember that one, that one point. Now, this is at the beginning of Sennacherib's invasion in the land, early 701. Hezekiah's in rebellion against God. Sennacherib invades Judah then, uh, conquers during this time. He's conquered 46 cities and towns. He's laying siege to Lachish and threatening uh, Jerusalem. He then sends his three henchmen there to propagandize and to intimidate Jerusalem. They have their meeting. The representatives from Hezekiah come back. They give their report to him. And Hezekiah, we're told in the beginning of chapter 19, humbles himself before God and calls upon God in prayer. But chronologically, there's several things that happen in between. There are several things that happen in between. Now, as you go through chapter 19, what you see is in verses 1 through 7, you have the description of Hezekiah humbling himself before God, going to the temple, sending his representatives to Isaiah to seek the guidance of God's word as it comes through the prophet. And then there is a promise from God given through Isaiah uh, in verse 6, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria blaspheme me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So here's a promise of God, the first promise here that we see in the order of the Scripture, that God is going to give them victory and Sennacherib is going to leave. This is followed by a second return of the Rabshakeh, who has gone back, he's uh, gone back to Sennacherib. Sennacherib's still involved in the assault on Lachish. And while, uh, and for, at this time, word comes of Terhaka, the king of uh, Ethiopia, uh, the pharaoh of the of upper, upper Egypt at that time. There was a, a dual uh, monarchy in Egypt at this time, a dual dynasty serving at this time. And Terhaka is coming up from the south. And so Sennacherib is being threatened from his southern flank. He wants to lay siege to Jerusalem. And so there's a problem there. So he sends uh, the Rabshaka back a second time, hoping that he can uh, get Jerusalem and Hezekiah to hurry up and to, to surrender so that he can put all of his attention on the Egyptians coming up from the south. Then we have 
Hezekiah's second prayer. There's a prayer at the beginning of chapter 19, a second prayer in starting in verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the, what? The living God. So Hezekiah is defining the real issue in terms of the character of God and in terms of the integrity of God. That's what's at stake. These these pagans have come along and said, you can't really protect us and you can't exist. You have to stand up for your integrity, God. So that's his argument in his prayer. We'll look at that in more detail. Then there is a second answer from God given through Isaiah in verse 20. And there we read, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Israel, uh, king of Assyria. Notice, because you prayed to me. Prayer changes things. Sometimes people get caught up in fatalism. They think, well, you know, God really, uh, you know, whatever God's going to do, he's going to do. It doesn't really matter what I do. In the epistle of James in the New Testament, we read, you have not because you ask not. Prayer changes things, and prayer is going to change the circumstances here. And because of Hezekiah's prayer, God says, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib the king, I have heard, and this is the word which the Lord has has um, spoken concerning him. And this follows a, a long section of Revelation talking about how the Assyrians have come in and just like a bunch of... Uh, uh, lumberjacks, and they had just swept through the timber of the nations and uh, devastated all of the, the forests, as it were, of the nations, and yet they're not going to capture and destroy Jerusalem. And so God expresses this. We'll come back and look at all this in detail as we go through it, but we have to look at this uh, for a minute today and just for sort of an overview. And it concludes with a promise. And this is going to be, again, the second promise that God, that we read so far, that God gives to, uh, to Hezekiah. Actually, it's the third promise, but we haven't seen the first one yet. It's the second in the order in which we're reading the text. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That's an allusion to the Davidic covenant. Why does God protect Jerusalem? Because of his plan and purposes and because of his character and integrity. Not because of Hezekiah's piety. Not because of what Hezekiah did. He does it for his own sake. God does not... Deal with us on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of his character. That's what grace is all about. So God in his grace is going to defend the city because of his character has been put on the, uh, uh, on the block, as it were, and to, in, because he's made a promise to David in terms of, of, of the Davidic seed leading eventually uh, to the greater son of David, the Messiah. And so then we have uh, the conclusion of that uh, event chronologically, we're told about the defeat of Sennacherib in verses 35 to 37, where the angel of the Lord comes and during the night slaughters 185,000 Assyrians, and the people, when the army, when the people woke up in the morning, the, they're all dead. Sennacherib has already left. He got wind of a rumor, headed home, and after he left, the army. His army is totally destroyed by God. It's reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt and how God delivered Israel during that time. So it's a tremendous miracle. But there are going to be consequences for Sennacherib, and some 20 years later, uh, he will be assassinated by two of his sons, and they will kill him and escape. And then the third son, the two oldest sons, uh, tried to execute a coup that didn't work, and they had to flee, and then his third son, Esau Haddon, uh, reigned in his place. Now, that's the end of the episode. Now, when you come to chapter 20, it seems from the way we read Scripture that chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, but the reality is is that chapter 20 comes before chapter 19. Chapter 20 sort of fills in some blanks for us that we didn't know about in chapter uh, chapter 20.
I mean in chapter uh, uh, chapter 19. The apparent problem is this. If you look down to chapter 20, verse 5, God answers this prayer of Hezekiah. What happens is Hezekiah is deathly ill. What we'll learn is that he's under the sin unto death. He has disobeyed God, and this occurs before the events of chapter 18, uh, verse 17. After he has refused to trust God, he takes all the silver and gold out of the temple to buy off Sennacherib. He's in carnality. Then God strikes him with this illness and tells him that he's going to die. Chapter 20, verse 1, God tells uh, Hezekiah through Isaiah the prophet, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So he's under the sin unto death. And so he turns his face to the wall, prays to the Lord in a prayer that is very similar to various psalms, calls upon the Lord to remove the sin unto death. He turns back to God, and God then promises that he will not take his life, that he'll live another 15 years. And notice what he says in verse 5 and 6. God is speaking in verse 5 to Isaiah. He says, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Notice how the emphasis on David. It is a, God is going to be faithful to his promise to David to keep one of David's seed on the throne in Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought the king of Assyria got killed in 35 to 37 of the last chapter. He did. That's why this verse means that this event has to have taken place before, before the defeat of the Assyrian army in verse 35. So this is the first promise. This promise comes to Hezekiah when he's under the sin unto death for his refusal to trust God when the Assyrian problem first generates back in eight, chapter 18 uh, between verse 16 and verse 17. That's the first hint of this problem. Uh, well, there's another reason we have to move this back there, and I'll show you from, the, from this chapter as well. So... David, I mean, uh, Hezekiah is under the sin unto death. He turns back to God, and God promises to lift the penalty of the sin unto death. He's going to give him another 15 years, and he also says, and I will deliver this city from the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake, for the sake of my servant David. Wait a minute. You note the similarity of that language with chapter 19, verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. This is actually the first promise that God made. Then when Hezekiah sends his team out to listen to the propaganda of the Rob Shaka, when they come back to David, at, I mean to Hezekiah at the beginning of chapter 19, and Hezekiah uh, tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and goes to the temple. This is his response of faith and trust. He's executing what we call the faith rest drill, trusting in a promise of God that's already been given, and that's this promise from 20 verse 6. Now, if you go on in chapter 20, there's one other episode that's covered in chapter 20. In verse 12, we're told about another situation that occurs in approximately the same time. It's not specific. It just says, at that time, Berodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So that tells us that first Hezekiah is sick, and then Berodach Baladan is going to come and visit And when he comes to visit, Hezekiah, we're told in verse 13, is just very attentive to them. He's just almost obsequious. And he's also going to show off. And he's going to take him to the treasuries of his house. Notice verse 13. Uh, Verse 13, he says, 
Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. Now, what do we learn here? If we go back to chapter 18, 15, Hezekiah gave the king of Assyria all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord in the treasuries of the king's house. So that means that this episode... I think I misspoke a minute ago. That means that this episode in 2012 through 19 had to happen before 1815, before Hezekiah gives all the silver and gold to Sennacherib. Now, if the, if the event at the end of chapter 20 occurs before that, then the sickness had to occur before that. Okay, so... Uh, we, it's, it's a little bit of a chronological conundrum here that has driven people nuts over the years, but the best solution is that chapter 19 chronologically occurs in the time period of chapter 18 when Hezekiah is going to turn back to the Lord, and that records his turn back to the Lord and the promise there. Now, we're going to get through all these details as we go through them. So let's go back to chapter 19, verse 1. So it was when Hezekiah heard what his three representatives uh, brought, the report that they brought back, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. So at this point, he is turning to God, and he is following the proper procedure that we see in Scripture. And this begins with confession of sin which is also described in Scripture as as humbling ourselves before God. Hum, humbling ourselves to God is the way in which the believer is just an expression for the believer submitting to the authority of God. And in submitting to the authority of God, we know that when we come into His presence, we have to first of all acknowledge our sin, and that's what confession means. Confession. And repentance, these are key terms, and we see what they mean in this passage. Uh, just to illustrate what I'm saying, Psalm 32.5, which is uh, David's confession uh, after the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to kill Uriah and all that was involved in that, he says to God, I acknowledge my sin to you. Notice, he's not going around acknowledging his sin to everybody in town. Sin is between him and God. That's the definition of sin in the Scripture is we breach God's character, we break his law, and that sin is between us and God, and it's not we, we don't go around uh, airing our dirty laundry to everybody in town. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I do not hide, I said. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. What does confess mean in context? It's a, a synonymous parallelism. To confess means to acknowledge or to admit what you've done. Well, wait a minute. I thought I had to show remorse. No, you don't have to do anything. Remorse is not part of the semantic meaning of confession. Now, it might be there, but that's not what it means to confess. Confess means to admit wrongdoing. It doesn't mean to show remorse. And I always love to use my favorite illustration here, and that is that when... Uh, ever I have received a uh, ticket for some sort of traffic infraction, and uh, usually speeding, although that ha- hasn't happened in a while. Uh, it happened several times when I first went up to Connecticut because they have really low speed limits up there, and I was used to driving in Texas and not in New England, that when I would go before the judge, he would say, well, did you do it? The answer is yes. He's not concerned with how I feel about it. He wants to know, did I do it or not? That's the issue in confession. It's a legal concept. Now, you may feel bad, and and if you feel bad and you're remorseful and you whine and cry in front of the judge, he may lower the... uh, He may lower the fine if he feels like it, or maybe you just make him nauseous and he increases the fine. But but the issue is not how you feel about it. The issue is what does the law say and did you do it? That's what confession is. Now, repentance means to change your mind and change your direction. So that somebody who, let's say, racks up five or six speeding tickets in a year 
And each time he goes to court, he confesses that. He admits or acknowledges his wrongdoing. That confession is legitimate. He pays his fine, and he's back in fellowship with the law, as it were. That's confession. But after a year or so of that, after five or six uh, penalties that he's paid, he may come to the point of saying, well, you know, it's not really good for me to be getting all of these uh, tickets and paying all of these fines. I'm going to go bankrupt. I need to start obeying the law. That is repentance. That is turning. Okay? That's, they're two different things. Confession is one thing. Turning is another thing. It's not to try to get God's approval. It's to go move from a position of disobedience to a position of obedience. So the, the Hebrew word that's used is the word shuv, which means to turn, and it has a very important, very important uh, uh, context. One other example of uh, confession is David in Psalm 51.3, I, I know my transgressions, or I, literally it's I acknowledge my transgressions. Yeah, that's what confession is. It's to acknowledge or admit what you've done. And he says, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So that's the, uh, that's the idea there is uh, sin is only against, only against God. And then God forgives us. Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. At the point of confession, there's forgiveness, slates wiped clean, the sin is removed, it's not brought up again, it's, it's taken care of. Now, there's another concept that goes with this, and that's the one I alluded to when I used the word humbling yourself to, before God. This is the word that's used in a very well-known passage in Second Chronicles 7.14. In the chapter preceding this, we have the dedicatory prayer of Solomon when he dedicated the temple. And it's an interesting prayer because in his prayer of dedication, if you remember, when we studied this a while back, he goes to God and he says, basically, these people are really going to screw up. At some point, they're going to turn to idols. They're going to profane the sanctuary. You're going to do what you said you would do in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and you're going to remove them from the land. But I'm going to pray now, this is Solomon praying, that when they do this, when they have disobeyed you and you have removed them from the land, I pray that when they turn back to you that you will restore them to the land. That was Solomon's prayer. That he's basing it on the promise of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 uh, through 30, that God had foretold that at some point uh, Israel would disobey God, they would completely profane the sanctuary, they would live no differently than the pagans around them. God would remove them from the land, but God also said, but you will turn back to me, and when you do, I will restore you completely to the land from the four corners of the earth. So Solomon in his prayer of dedication at the temple is simply calling upon God to do what he said he would do in those passages. Now, in Second Chronicles 7, God answers his prayer, and in that answer, God says, and my people, which always refers to the Jews. Now, I want you to remember this context, because this verse is abused by all kinds of people. It can only be interpreted in relationship to Israel and can only be applied to Israel, because it comes, this whole context, First Chronicles 6 First Chronicles 7 has to do with the land. Notice it here. And that's only one place. That's not here on this side of the Atlantic. It's over there on the other side of the Mediterranean. God says, my people, every time the word my people is used in Kings and Chronicles, it refers to Israel. It doesn't refer to the French or the Irish or the English or the Americans. It only refers to Israel. When my people who are called by my name, that's only Israel, my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face. That is the same verbiage Solomon uses in First Chronicles 6 to describe what God promised in Leviticus 26 and 27. They all connect together. God said in Leviticus 20, for those of you who've missed this, in Leviticus 26, God said, you eventually are going to become so disobedient, I'm going to take you out of the land. 
the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Eventually, you're going to turn back to me, and I'll restore you to the land. When Solomon built the temple, he reiterates that and said, God, I know they're going to screw up, and you're going to take them out of the land. And I'm praying that when they turn back to you, that you will do what you said you would do in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and you'll restore them to the land. And this is God's answer. When my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, in other words, he's saying, you're right, I'm going to do what I promised I was going to do in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Notice the key word. Two key words, humble and turn. Humble means that you put your submit to God's authority rather than continue in, in disobedience. Whenever you confess your sin, when you confess a crime in the courtroom, what are you doing? You are submitting to the authority of the judge. When you confess your sin to God, you're submitting to his authority. It might last a nanosecond, but for that nanosecond, you're submitting to God's authority. And for that nanosecond, you get forgiveness. And then if you sin again, then you're out of fellowship and you've got to start all over. Uh, but God said that's, that's what humility means, is to submit to the authority of God. That's what was said about Moses. Moses was the most humble man in the Old Testament. Why? Because he was the most authority-oriented man in the Old Testament. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. See, that's the other side. It's it's not all. We're not going to go anywhere in the scripture in, in the spiritual life if all we end up doing is confessing, confessing, confessing. We're in fellowship, out of fellowship, in fellowship, out of fellowship, in fellowship, out of fellowship. You've got to abide. You've got to stay in fellowship. Walk by means of the Spirit. You've got to stay in fellowship for a while to grow spiritually. That comes when you turn. Okay, then you may turn back. We all do that, but we have to understand the mechanic here. When they humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, in other words, give up the idolatry and focus back on God, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attend to this prayer offered in this place. He's answering Solomon's prayer. Now, this, to understand this terminology, you have to go back to Deuteronomy 30 through 33 where God promised after going through the whole list of all of the the ways he's going to punish Israel and eventually take them out of the land, after all of that, he says, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So what's their circumstance? They're all out of the land, scattered among all the nations. And you return. There's that same word, shuv again. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples which, where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, my point is that Hezekiah's thinking in verse 1 is to apply this principle. And the principle is that we have to turn, we have to humble ourselves, that is, submit to God's authority, and turn back to Him. I'm going to lead the way, and then maybe God will deliver us from Sennacherib. So this is the point. When Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. He understands the right procedure that he, he has to confess sin. That's where you, uh, you he, that's the point of the tearing the clothes, covering himself with sackcloth. He's visually demonstrating that he's submitting to God's authority in humility, and he goes to the place where God dwells in Israel. And then he, let me see, uh, in verse 3, uh, verse 2, Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth. So they've got to demonstrate their humility also to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So he's going to, he, he's going to in, in terms of application today, he's going to confess his sin, and then he's going to turn to the word of God to see what God has to say for him so that he can apply the word in his own life, what we call the faith rest drill. So Hezekiah, he sends, so he's, Hezekiah sends them to Isaiah, and they say to uh, Isaiah in verse 3, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble. 
and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. In other words, we're at a point of deliverance, but there's no way we can deliver ourselves. It's a very uh, metaphorical way of speaking. Verse 4, they go on to say, It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. That's the issue. They're putting the issue in the prayer in terms of God's character. Now, we can go to God and pray on all kinds of bases. Lord, would you please do this? Because if not, you know, I'm going to be poor. I'm going to lose the deal. Uh, this is going to happen to me. That's going to happen to me. Those are all self-oriented reasons. When you see effective praying in the Scripture, it's because the one who is praying is stating, has articulated a case demonstrating that it is the character and integrity of God that is at stake. They argue from, the, from promises and make a case to God why he should answer the prayer the way they want him to. Not based on what it's going to do to them, but because, God, if you don't answer this prayer, they, they have challenged your character. They have challenged your existence. They have challenged your reality. If you don't deliver us, then your reputation is no better than any other God in the ancient world. Your reputation is at stake, God. Deliver us. What are they doing? They're going back to the very promises of God and saying, God, we're calling upon you to fulfill the promises that you have made to us because your reputation's at stake. And that is how they frame the issue in verse 4. That's how the same way that... um, Hezekiah will frame the next prayer in verse 16 where he goes, uh, where he states it uh, as, as this. He says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. The issue here is reproach to God. God, you need to defend yourself. And in doing that, you do it by defending, defending us. And so the answer to their prayer is a positive answer. They bring this to Hezekiah, I mean to Isaiah, and Isaiah answers them in verse 6 and say, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, that is Sennacherib, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. He's going to hear a rumor that there is a coup in process back, back home. And so he leaves. His departure precedes the destruction of his army. We don't know by how much, but whether it was a couple of days or a couple of weeks. But So he is going to leave. What's going on here? What's the solution to the problem? First of all, the solution is to, uh, the solution is to turn to God. We do that through humbling ourselves, putting ourselves under the authority of God, confessing sin, and focusing on his word. That's the second component, is then to trust his word and to rely upon his word and to then relax and let God solve the problem and not try to do it in the energy of our own flesh or our own abilities. This is exactly what's demonstrated at the cross. God solves the problem of sin at the cross by putting the penalty completely and totally on Jesus Christ, so that in faith we trust him and him alone, and then we relax, we don't try to gain the favor and merit of God by doing good deeds on our own. That doesn't mean that that there's not a role and a place for obedience and good deeds. For as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we have been saved for this purpose, that is the, to do the, the, the works of God. In uh, Second uh, in Ephesians 2:10, that's the focal point. But the works come as a result of our spiritual life and spiritual growth, not to gain the merit or the favor of God. That is freely given. So we have to turn to God, submit to His authority, and trust. That's the essence. That's what we see with Hezekiah, and we'll develop this more as we go through the remainder of this episode with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to remind, be reminded that the issue is that we are to submit to your authority, and that is related in different ways, different applications, different situations. But when we're out of fellowship, that means to confess our sins and then to walk by means of the Holy Spirit and to trust in you. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture promises that salvation is free, that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it, that we uh, that it becomes ours simply by believing the message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, and by faith alone we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truths that we have studied today and that those who perhaps have never trusted Christ would take this opportunity to believe uh, in him, to trust him for their salvation. And for those who are already saved, that we might be reminded that the real solution in, to the issues in life they are not solutions from the human sphere, but they are solutions provided by you and you alone, that we are to trust in the divine solution, not the human solution. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.